WCNC Charlotte. This is Flashpoint. Thanks for joining us here on Flashpoint. I'm Ben Thompson. Two years into this pandemic, and most of us are vaccinated. Maybe you've already had COVID. Maybe you're boosted as well. And most people are moving on. Mass mandates were lifted. Folks are returning to the office. People are booking vacations. And it's such a relief, and it's exciting. But it is important to remember, for a few, the fight continues on. They're COVID long haulers. They still have symptoms months after their first positive test. Doctors say somewhere around 30% of people who got COVID can develop these long-term symptoms. Who is more likely to become a long hauler is still up in the air. Doctors say the number of symptoms someone has when they're infected may be a clue, though, as to whether or not they'll suffer in the long term. Joining us today, former state representative Trisha Cotham, who happens to be running once again now in the 112th district. She is a COVID long hauler. Uh, Trisha, thanks for coming on. We know that uh, as of this morning that you've had a, a rough go of it. Um, where are you at in, in your recovery right now? Well, I'm, I'm certainly still in recovery and the recovery has improved. January and February were the absolute worst. March has been a little bit better, but it's also just very unpredictable. I thought the morning um, would be easy and okay, and it's proven that is not the case. So I think that's what's really hard about having long COVID is there really isn't one clear path to get better. There's not one drug to cure this. Um, so you always are kind of in wondering and limbo and just wanting to know, is this ever going to end? And am I, am I going to have vertigo my whole life or a high heart rate? Um, so that part is hard. Uh, and give us the history here. I think you actually got COVID a couple of times. Um, when did it first happen? And then did you have continue to have symptoms or was there, how did this play out in the last year or so? So January of 2020, I had done some international travel. About the end of January of 2020, I became extremely sick. I could not stay up. I had severe nausea. Um, I did not have a fever. And I asked my doctor, you know, could it be this virus from China? Because that's what it was referred as right in that very beginning. And he said, no, nausea doesn't go with it. And you would have to have a fever of 105. So weeks went on. Um, it was absolutely, I mean, I thought I was going to die. It was that bad. Um, I started to feel better about four, about four months afterwards, and everyone was in lockdown then. <laughs> and then last year, March of 21, I got COVID again. And the symptoms were not as severe. Um, but the after symptoms were the, the part that was very concerning for me. And there's not a lot of research that has been done. There is more now, but last year, no. And I went to several doctors because I had extremely high blood pressure, extremely high heart rate. My pulse was really, really high and I was having a lot of dizziness and sometimes I would faint. And multiple doctors just said, well, we'll put you on blood pressure medication. We'll give you something for the vertigo. Um, 
but that didn't really solve why is this happening. And if you try to solve your own medical issue on Dr. Google, you're thinking yourself you're going to die. So I finally found another doctor who um, understood long haul COVID and was interested. And so I was diagnosed then, but no one was really using that term and it didn't mean much. And things did start to improve. And you got in a third time then in, in January? Is that when it happened a third time? Yeah, so this year of January, um, started feeling pretty bad and thought, no, this can't happen to me again. Well, I, you know, took a test and sure enough, it was and um, got placed into a long haul clinic, which was now available and became just extremely, extremely sick from Omicron. And it was scary. I, I had to go to the emergency room, urgent care a lot. It, it was just a really hard time. And I'm still in that recovery process. How does it impact your, your, your daily life right now? Certainly it is better. Um, I'm finding myself able to do more things during the day. I think better, you hear the term brain fog. I certainly experienced that and that was a very strange feeling. I do feel that is getting better. The vertigo has subsided. So I'm able to do some normal things and at the same time, but I do take a lot of medications, a lot of inhalers, I get IVs, all that still goes on today. You are, you've decided to run for state house again uh, after a few years away. Why, given the the um, traumatic situation you've been through over the last two years? Sure, and I, and I think that traumatic situation is the real reason why. You know, when you're sick with COVID, you're pretty isolated. You're alone, and you don't have that much to do. And I really just started reflecting on where do I go from here? What's my next step in life? And you know, you write things down and everything always came back to public service because that's truly what I am at heart from being an educator here to a legislator. And I had had some people tell me about this new district, um, but I wasn't ready to just look at it. And then I had more people telling me, you know, you live in this new district, this would be great. And um, so I really just thought about it and prayed about it. and told my mom about it and uh, didn't tell anybody else. <laughs> how has what you've been through, how will that change the way you approach public service and policy? Sure, um, I think that the next big wave of COVID that we are gonna have is long COVID. I think there needs to be a tremendous amount of more funding for research for trials and our UNC hospitals, Duke, all of these universities are very equipped to do that. And I just became more inspired that I want to be a setting example. I was very transparent about my COVID and um, I just would like to have the honor to serve the new people in this new district. Your history in public service is well known around uh, the greater Charlotte area. And I know I speak on behalf of everybody who's seen your struggle through social media, um, that we are all thinking about you and we hope you get better. Uh, and we wish you and your family nothing but the best. Thank you, Ben, so much. All right, more Flashpoint after this.
Welcome back to Flashpoint. Let's talk about the latest in the U.S. Senate race here in North Carolina. Democrats have pretty much agreed upon Sherry Beasley being their candidate. Meanwhile, Republicans, they are battling it out. Former Governor Pat McCrory continues to lead in polls. Meanwhile, Ted Budd and Mark Walker continue to fight to capture a wing of the party that tilts further right ideologically. Former President Donald Trump has endorsed Budd and has unsuccessfully tried to get Walker out of the race. The political action group Club for Growth plans to spend $10 million between now and the election to boost Bud's profile. The group has already spent $4 million to support Bud and attack McCrory. Joining us now, former Union County GOP chair, longtime friend of the show, Dan Barry. Dan, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing fantastic, Ben. It's great to see you again. It's nice to have you on. All right, so size up the state of this race. The, the primary is coming up in May. Where do you see things? Wow. Um, you know, it's interesting because we're in the middle of party reorganization stuff. So I've seen a lot of these folks in the last couple of weeks. I think now it is a two horse race with somebody just kind of right on their tail. And then, you know, a late arrival coming around the corner is Marjorie Eastman. Don't underestimate what happens. You know, you, you in your setup, you talked a little bit about the McCory bud race. All the data indicates that McCory is out front. Um, the Trump effect for Ted Budd was uh, pretty significant early on because, you know, Ted was down in what low double digits and uh, with the Trump endorsement, he jumped up pretty quickly. All indications are that McCory is outside the margin of error on that as we approach primary day. But Bud is in this uh, Mark Walker. I see him all the time. He's a great guy. Um, I, I teased him. I said, you know, you're everybody's number two. What happens? He said, number two gets you to the runoff. And then we then we're on to the races. So let's, you know, it's it's just way too often, uh, way too close to call at this point. But I would I would lend, lend to tell you that McCory is out front. If you were to take a snapshot of this race right now and try to glean different views and perspectives off of it, what would you say this says about the state of the GOP in North Carolina right now? Um, you know, you're you're asking a question without asking, and I'd tell you the Trump effect did not have nearly as substantial a boost to Ted Budd as I believe the Budd campaign was expecting it to have. Um, you know, I think the Politico story that broke when was this been in January, where there was a rumor that Trump was going to withdraw the endorsement, I think, or he was very frustrated with the lack of performance of the Budd campaign, and then there was a quick retraction of that. I think that, you know, we all know Trump's temperament. And uh, he doesn't like to come in second. And so I think that, you know, Bud's not being able to break through and, and mount a lead in this election is probably frustrating President Trump. The second piece of this is Club for Growth. And full disclosure, I'm a Club for Growth fellow. I've been involved with that organization for a long time. But to see that they have kind of tried to put their thumb on the scales with both the U.S. Senate race and then multiple U.S. House races I believe concerns voters. You know, folks in North Carolina, Ben, don't like to be told by outsiders what to do. And, so, and, and not only that, but I think you and I get in this and we, we follow this stuff. But I, there was an unaffiliated voter I know who saw that McCrory ad um, and he walked away. He's like, wait, am I supposed to like McCrory after this or am I not supposed to like him? And I said, well, you got to understand this is targeted towards a very few group of people in, in the Republican Party. And so. <laughs> unaffiliated or even Democrats might say, oh, he worked with Joe Biden. Oh, he said these level headed things and they might think this is a great thing. But in the Republican primary, these things were not, are not meant to be a good thing. 
So we can talk about primary politics all day long. The Democrats have the exact same challenge as they try to break through. But, you know, my first reaction was, which Bud, I mean, which Bacoriac? Because they're just so voluminous, especially here in the Charlotte market. But I think what you what you got to reach out and say is when he's a, a, a political um, editorialist on the radio is one thing. And when he's governor of, the, of North Carolina after a hurricane and the president of the United States shows up with with uh, relief money, the governor has some responsibilities to be a host to the president of the United States and smacking him around for that, I think, is is extraordinary. The I mean, base Republican voter. Are they catching the nuance? Probably not. Many people would also say there's a third one there, and that was the mayor of Charlotte, which some people would say was a different one of all those other ones. Um, Let's talk about the Supreme Court nomination this week because it played prominently um, uh, on a national scale. But also you saw two Carolina Republicans playing a pretty big role in the questioning. First, let's listen from Lindsey Graham. On a scale of one to ten, how faithful would you say you are? terms of religion. You know, I go to church probably three times a year, so that speaks poorly of me. <laughs> or do you, do you attend church regularly? Well, Senator, I am reluctant to talk about my faith in this way just because I want to be um, mindful of the need for the public to uh, have confidence in my ability to separate out my personal views. Now we want to hear from Tom Tillis. He asked her a question about, as public defender, um, her levels of compassion and if it would impact her work in the Supreme Court, specifically referencing inmates being released when COVID-19 was spreading across prisons two years ago. Take a listen to Tom Tillis. What I said in that statement that you read was it would seem as though something like a deadly pandemic rampant in the jails would justify releasing everyone But I go on to say in that very opinion, Congress has indicated that we have to take each case individually. I feel after watching this the same way I felt after watching Amy Coney Barrett's um, nomination process. The only people who come out looking good in this are the actual nominees themselves because the senators, all of them across both parties for different reasons and different nominations, never quite come out looking as, as, as good as they think they might think they do. I wish we could get a class on the role of advise and consent, because since Ronald Reagan, whichever party of the presidency and the minority party in the House, excuse me, in the Senate Judiciary Committee, has almost taken it on themselves just to go on the attack automatically. If she qualified to be on the U.S. Supreme Court, I'm not in a position to make that decision, but clearly the president of the United States think she is, and she must be one of the highest ranking or thought-provoking jurists in the country. You know, what's interesting to me is when the Democrats are um, interviewing the Republican candidates for nominees for the Supreme Court, all these personal questions are really important and they need to be answered. When the Republican uh, members of the committee are asking similar questions to Democratic nominees, now all of a sudden they're off off limits. So it's really kind of interesting to watch this play out. The Senate is so close. I still think she breaks through. It is what it is. I mean, yeah, I, I don't, it's become so toxic and poisonous. Um, that, I'm not answering your question, I know, but it's- No, it's, it, 
There, there was not a right or wrong answer. I, I just think it's unfortunate the, the, the tone that things take. And I mean, you have advising consent and you want to you know, ask good, hard questions. And I think people expect that. But then at times it just seems like it turned take a nasty term. Same thing happened with, with the Trump nominees as well. Well, but she's not answering the questions either, Ben. I mean, when, when one of her answers is, I can't define what a woman is. And remember, I wasn't watching this. We had the Heritage Foundation people in town, and I was consuming most of my time this week. But not being able to answer just some of those fundamental questions, and I know where that was leading to. That's the thing. But, I mean, the, 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 answer, the answer was sort of as out there as the question itself. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the problem with these, is that, that, is that you get these politically motivated question and answers, and then, I don't know, for folks watching at home. They want to hide from the answer because they're scared of what the next question is going to be. Probably so. All right. And you're the reporter. Imagine you being in the room. Oh, I, that's why it, I sympathize with the hard questions. I don't mind the hard questions. I just think sometimes that they're done for the purpose of people watching um, at home and not actually to get to the You mean that you are so jaded you think this is made for TV? I know, I know, <laughs> I know. That's why, that's why Senator Sass was making the argument of why we should not have courts in the camera, I mean, cameras in the courtroom. And I never agreed with that, but after he made that point, I'm like, you know what? He's on to something. All right, Dan Barry, I'm we, probably, are, we are I'm probably not your best. I'm probably not your best GOP uh, interviewer here because yeah. here I am talking about it being made for TV as the Republicans are interviewing. But we appreciate it nonetheless. Dan, thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Ben, thank you. It's great to talk to you. All right. Take care. More Flashpoint after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Throughout this pandemic, patients have put their trust in hospitals, health plans, and medical providers. But as medical staff work tirelessly to save lives, the healthcare industry couldn't stop hackers from causing a record number of security breaches. Criminals got access to medical data, personal, financial information. WCNC Charles Nate Morabito found nearly one and a half billion people were impacted here in the Carolinas alone just in the last two years. We've learned the federal government is investigating more than two dozen healthcare data breaches right now with origins in North and South Carolina, including cases involving well-known hospitals, health plans and medical providers. Take it from someone who's received one of those dreaded letters. I've never felt like it could happen to me. When hackers capitalize on a healthcare company's vulnerability, it's the patient who risks losing the most. We can't rely on them to keep it safe. The problem is that a lot of the systems that we trust, they get hacked. Dr. Mohammed Shihab is a software information systems professor at UNC Charlotte. The question is not if you are going to be hacked or no. The question is when are you going to get hacked? He says no matter how hard the healthcare industry works to secure networks and detect attackers quickly, the weakest link in all of this is the user. Hackers can always count on human error. Some of the biggest names in healthcare are on this list, under investigation by the federal government for breaches involving unsecured protected health information, victims of hackers, unauthorized access, and even theft. Office for Civil Rights data show healthcare companies in the Carolinas have reported breaches impacting at least 1.4 million people since 2020. When you hear that number, what do you think? It's a very big number. Dr. Shihab says the pandemic has made healthcare data even more desirable, used for ransom leverage, to sell on the black market, and for malicious reasons. And it's especially problematic since these companies are entrusted with employee files, financial information, and patient health records, which detail your family's private medical battles. The problem with this kind of data, especially health data, it 
doesn't only affect you, it affects you and your relatives. In light of the growing threat, he recommends patients only give what's absolutely necessary. So basically, try not to release as much information about yourself in the system. For your online medical accounts, he recommends two-factor authentication. It adds another layer of defense. And is a big believer in low-cost or even free password managers that create long random passwords for you, so you only have to remember one. And so it's more difficult for hackers to make you their next victim. A congressional report released just last month identified eight healthcare companies, including one in North Carolina, fined a combined $13 million following federal investigations in 2020 alone. In hundreds of other cases, meanwhile, the government required corrective action aimed at preventing future breaches. Nate Morabito, WCNC Charlotte. More Flashpoint after this. And before we leave you folks, come interact with us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, you name it, we're there. And if there's something you want us to cover on Flashpoint, let us know. We're always open to it. And we'll see you get back here next week.